Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. This is a two-part Wabanaki Windows special covering the 131st Legislature's first session and tribal issues brought before it. This two-part special is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine. Today is our second is our first show of a two-part special. Um, so there were a couple of tribal issues that came before the legislature this session um, and the tribes hope to see some really positive things uh, happen. And this, we started out very hopefully and we ended uh, not surprisingly uh, in with disappointment. So we begin our, our two part series here. Um, our guests today are Chief Kirk Francis and Ambassador Molly and Daner of the Penobscot Nation, and Attorney Corey Hinton of Drummond Woodson, who represents the Passamaquoddy tribe. So let's get straight to the point. LD 2004 was sponsored by Representative Rachel Talbot Ross, Speaker of the House, um, at the request of the tribes. <clears throat> that bill was vetoed by Governor Mills in a six page letter to the legislature that looked for all intents and purposes, like a legal brief. We will uh, get into the letter in a few minutes. But first, I want to start with you, uh, Chief, and talk about um, LD 2004. Uh, what was that meant to accomplish? Uh, and then we'll get to the veto letter. Thank you. Um, and thank you for having me, Donna. And uh, I want, you know, LD 2004 was a culmination of years of work um, with our tribal attorneys, representatives, uh, tribes themselves, obviously, um, members of the legislature, Judiciary Committee. Um, this was not some new subject matter that we were bringing to the table uh, this session. We actually had a bill, you might remember, with Congressman Golden on this very, on this very issue where the state uh, the governor's office in particular um, objected to that bill, uh, saying that these issues need to be resolved in the state. And of course, now we are hearing a lot of things that they think maybe Congress needs to settle it. So so, um, so this bill was really intended to um, put the tribes on par. Um, we talked about, you know, in thinking about how we got here in terms of the legislative resolve back in under Speaker Gideon and Senator Troy Jackson, uh, Senator Carpenter, and a whole host of others that that brought us in uh, years ago uh, and said, uh, you know, the crux of the problem is these contentious provisions within the Settlement Act, so let's change them. And, you know, we had a legislative resolve that focused on equity. Uh, this bill uh, was about equality for the main tribes with tribes all across the country. Um, allowing us to access federal beneficial acts, to have every tool in our tool chest to to really address the um, the disparities our communities are facing. So, and the bill really all boiled down to one thing: it really just kind of changed the paradigm. Right now, um, you know, the tribes have to lobby Congress to be included in bills um, to have them apply to us. You know, sometimes those congressional bills are obvious that you want to have applied to you. Sometimes they're not. So, um, so the, the uncertainty of whether bills apply to us or not 
um, creates a huge problem because you can't go back and get Congress to go back into session to, to add you to things. And you, um, and you know, even when you do try to get at it, it takes years um, to do that as we saw with VAWA. So basically all this bill really said was if you want to object state of Maine to the issues that are affecting tribal communities in Maine, in terms of their access to federal beneficial acts, then you should have to articulate that. And you should have to be the ones that go to Congress. State obviously has access to the delegation. They obviously have, have their ear. Um, and um, it would seem to make much more sense for everyone from a clarity standpoint where people stand up front on these issues. And I didn't think that was too unfair of an ask. Yeah. So, uh, so Molly, and what was your expectations from 2004 VLD? Well, I think going into things, we always know that we're up against a lot with the governor's opposition. The governor is a powerful political figure and she utilizes every tool in her toolbox, like Chief Francis alluded to. So I think that we always know we have quite the hill to climb when we're talking about kind of the the meat and potatoes of tribal sovereignty and, and amending the settlement act and looking at those task force recommendations, you know, other legislation we've been able to work with her on, um, you know, things that, that don't really shake up the status quo all, all that much, but, but make incremental progress, but anything that really gets to the heart of things, we know that we're up against a lot. So going into this session, looking at the slate of bills, uh, looking at all of the task force recommendations, I think it made sense to zero in on this one. It, it's very significant having access to federal Indian law. And I think it was like a, a litmus test to see if we could get the support needed in both chambers to potentially override a veto. Clearly, we didn't succeed in that. But I think that we made a lot of good progress. We did a lot of education of uh, people from both parties, which was a refreshing new change. And in those first votes uh, in the House and the Senate, we we did get a supermajority and just couldn't cling to enough support for the override, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I, I can't help but feel a tiny bit hopeful amidst all the frustration, um, you know, that we were able to kind of crack uh that the republican party a little bit and at least get some support uh and some engagement around these things yeah Corey. um i i don't i don't really have much to add to what the ambassador and the chief have already said but you know in my opinion this was a, a very simple incremental step that was intended to take one small part of those task force recommendations and advance them. The the opposition that we saw was not at all a surprise. Um, and I think the veto letter, as we get into it, um, it, it covers a lot of the same ground that we've heard. Um, I think the, the, the themes, um, they, they touch on race baiting tactics. Um, and I think they throw some very um, rather unintelligible legal arguments against the wall to see what sticks to really scare Mainers away from supporting equality for tribes. It's not something that was surprising, but the lengths that the governor's office went to to articulate those concerns and to um, push supporters of the tribes away from the tribes, um, that was a bit surprising, I think. But um, at this point, we've learned we really shouldn't be underestimating um, the state of Maine's opposition to equality for indigenous people. So, all right, 
that being said, let's look at this at this letter. And you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing. She does make, uh, I think she makes three points. And, uh, and she starts out by saying, uh, in considering the idea behind this legislation, I believe it is important to understand the underpinnings of the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. She didn't say land claim. Sorry, that's my, <laughs> my, uh, my fault there. A Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act. Uh, the settlement painstakingly negotiation, negotiated was mutually beneficial in many ways. Uh, number one, it provided 81.5 million, uh, today's equivalent of more than 290 million in federal funds to the tribes. And, and let's just look at that little sentence there. Uh, What's your take on this uh, 81.5 million equivalent to 290 million in federal funds? You have any uh, reactions on that, um, Kirk? Or well, the, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it. I, <laughs> I think um, I think it's unfair to um, to look at this in totality when you when you think about what those courts were saying in the 1970s the conditions of Maine tribes um, agreeing that two-thirds of the state was was basically stolen from Indian nations here um, and and then 40 years later over 40 years later you get criticized because the federal government's solution to that was to give money um to the tribes to buy back the very land that everybody acknowledged was taken illegally. So, um, and not all the land, obviously very geographically defined lands. Um, so when, when I think about Penobscot's, um, as a recipient of those funds back then, and I think about, you know, what we've done with those resources, I mean, you know, 90% of it, um, you know, she talks about this $290 million value today. Um, what are those land values today? And so I think, um, I think it's just, again, as Corey mentioned, throwing a lot of stuff out there to try to say these tribes were, were justly compensated. They agreed to the agreement. And the facts are we use all that money, as you well know, um, predominantly for land acquisition. Uh, Molly Tangren higher education uh, funds and um, a trust fund for our membership that hasn't been touched in um, 40 years in terms of its principal. So, so um, if the $41 million is a, uh, is a problem for them, even though not one dime of that comes from any state taxpayer dollars in terms of state money, um, you know, I, I think we could go find it if that's the if that's the contentious issue. But I, I just I don't understand that argument in terms of um, why that trying to paint a picture that the tribe somehow got rich off the settlement and when, you know, that was compensation for, um, you know, very legally defined damages to the tribes. Anyone have any comment? Anybody else? Okay. 
my, my thought on that, and, and Kirk, you kind of touched on it, was that uh, this 81.5 million she's talking about, equivalent to 290 million, uh, state didn't pay one penny of that. Federal government paid that. So that's that's my point. And then she goes on to say uh, uh, the authority to acquire up to 300,000 acres of land around the state from willing private landowners. Uh, and then she says, in addition to their existing reservation lands. So this 300,000 acres of land that they said we could acquire. Uh, any con- Any comments on that? Kirk, go to you. I'll go to you first. Well, I don't want to be the only one talking here, but I, I know I think, I'm waiting for others here. <laughs> but I think that um, you know that, as everybody on this call well knows, um, the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribe, over 40 years later, still have not reached the, the 150,000 acres apiece um, that you know was the deal back then, and so. Um, so, you know, there are, there are many challenges to that. There was no, um, you know, automatic right for us to acquire lands we want. I mean, they have to be available. They're for sale. They have to be at the right price. There's a whole host of um, process that goes into it, but, um, I'm not sure what the point there is, except to say, uh, again, try to paint this picture that, you know, the tribe's got a lot of land. They got a lot of money. You know, what are they really complaining about? And, um, you know, and then you'll hear these arguments about, well, Maine is so unique because these lands are non-contiguous. And so, so on one breath, you know, we were compensated handsomely. And the other breath, um, you know, we have this checkerboard parcels of land because that's the way it's defined. I mean, that's not... Uh, that's not something that the tribes would, would have preferred, but that's that's the legal reality of what we're dealing with. We have certain places where we can place land in, in our inventory and in, in into our territory, and um, and we work with that the best we can. And, and it's not that unique. There are non-contiguous tribal lands all over the country. And so, um, so I think, uh, you know, again, I think it's this whole trying to paint a picture of, of, uh, you know, the tribes were, were justly compensated. Um, and really it, it sets the undertone of, of, uh, you know, I don't know why they're complaining kind of thing. I don't, um, uh, and trying to set that tone with main citizens to say, hey, look, you know, this is really a non-issue and, and it's, uh, and it's just too bad to take that approach because, uh, as you know, there are tribes, in this country with millions of acres of land with total sovereignty within those territories that exist quite nicely with their states. And, you know, there are always going to be some conflict between governments, just like there are with municipalities and state governments and everything else. I mean, so, um, so yeah, I find it all a little bit, you know, people that really know federal Indian law and know Indian country have been out there, um, they understand what a, what a laughable argument that is, but, um, you know, to the uneducated kind of, uh, listener or, or voter or whoever it may be, um, you know, 
these things can kind of, one thing she's very good at is uh, she, I'll give her that. She's a good lawyer. She, she knows how to um, articulate her message in a way that, um, you know, makes sense, you know, caveating everything with I'll work with the tribes, you know, let's come to the table. Let's find a bill that works. You know, you say all those things, they sound reasonable to the, to the, uh, again, to the rank and file citizen of the state, but, um, you know, behind the scenes and, and the work we're doing, we, we know what that means. And, and it means basically a status quo, but I, um, but yeah, in terms of the land and the money, it's all to me, uh, smokescreen to say, you know, they're doing quite well. And you heard some of that with, you know, some of the grant figures and stuff like that, that they were throwing around in the session. Yeah. But she, uh, she mentions the, uh, well, the, the 300,000 acres of land and uh, quite a bit of those came from the uh, paper companies. Uh, it, that's my understanding, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, most of those lands were totally devastated by harvesting, um, you know, we're getting lands and the only place we're allowed to put land into trust is in these unorganized townships. Um, so, um, so some of them are suitable for development. Some are not, um, some are, uh, you know, I'm thankful we have these lands from a cultural core, cultural identity standpoint, but I, um, but, you know, in terms of economic opportunities, I mean, the, the, the defined, places where we can get lands very few of them are really conducive to you know there's a lot of great hunting grounds and and uh, great places to harvest and, and great places to spend time in the outdoors and, and again i'm thankful you know especially for an east coast tribe that we have the opportunities to have those lands but um it's not like uh you know the tribes were given 150,000 acres of Mount Desert Island and, you know, Portland and, you know, all these places where you can have a multitude of opportunities, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. But right. There's a process too with that land. And don't you have have to have a buy-in by the local municipalities or don't they have to agree to the sale? Yeah. I think Corey could probably speak to the land process better than me, but, um, but yes, that, that is true. There is a process and it's. Um, so, so that's, that's why it's taken us like 20 years or more. It's more than that now. Maybe, maybe 40 to get mm-hmm. land. Corey, have a comment on that? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. I mean, we talk about this land claim settlement and this 150,000 acres and the chief reference that neither Pasquale nor Penobscot have, have hit those thresholds. And I, I've never seen. Um, the fee to trust process imposed on, on the tribes here in Maine pursuant to the settlement act is it's, it's extraordinary. And I've never seen anything like it because we can't just submit an application to the United States to accept title like a tribe would elsewhere. Um, there are, are steps that have to be gone through. You have to verify at times where certain funds are coming from. Um, you have to be obtaining, depending on where the lands are, municipal or state approvals, unless we're working within these old paper company lands. Um, and as the chief said, because a lot of those lands were environmentally devastated and clear cut, 
um, in anticipation of sales to the tribes, those lands that were, you know, made available were not necessarily attractive um, for, for really any community purpose. Um, and maybe they are now, maybe the, the environment has, you know, boomerang back after 40 years, but a lot of those lands were just industrially used and abused. Um, right now, part of my job is always the tribal attorney to be navigating the fee to trust process with clients and the Eastern region of the BIA, God bless their souls. They've got a lot on their plate. And so I can say that even for the, the trust acquisitions that are supposed to be mandatory, where the United States is really not supposed to have any discretion over whether they approve or not, it can take a year, year and a half to get these things done. I mean, just, just yesterday, I had a call with the BIA about a fee to trust application that we submitted almost a year ago. And they're like just getting around to like review the file. Um, and, and that particular parcel that's subject to that fee to trust application, it was a treaty reserved island that was illegally taken. It's adjacent to Indian Townships Reservation. And it was not even included in the lands that were recognized to be acquired under the Settlement Act. So, you know, putting aside the lands that were offered, that were used and abused, it was the, these areas were intentionally not created to be, at least in Passamaquoddy sense, adjacent to our lands. So when the tribes have had really, really critical community infrastructure needs, like addressing a housing, housing shortage at Pleasant Point, where there's no space to build homes, and the tribe wants to acquire a small parcel next to the reservation, we've got to jump through many hoops, municipal approvals, had to pay exorbitant sums of money to municipal governments to get their approval to, to build houses on tribally owned land. Um, tribes don't have to do this elsewhere in the United States. So anyone who says, you know, $81 million and access to 300,000 acres, like you should be good. The, our experience in administering this law and working under it um, has shown that it's been way more costly and, and way more burdensome to actually effectuate the intents of that let the settlement. And for that reason, I would say a fundamental purpose of the settlement remains entirely unfulfilled. The land claim settlement piece has not effectively occurred, in my opinion. And there are significant roadblocks for the tribes to fulfill and you know be able to acquire that full 150,000 acres in trust, respectively. Okay. Um, she goes on and she says, following the enactment uh, of Mixa, the tribes used this funding and authority to acquire land across the state of Maine. And today, the Passamaquoddy tribe and Penobscot Nation have greater land holdings than almost any other tribe east of the Mississippi with the ability to continue to acquire more land. Uh, and she said that uh, that's, that's the end of her first her first paragraph talking about, you know, why she's vetoing the bill. So uh, it, I'm wondering, is that, is that true uh, about uh, the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy having more land than almost the tribes, most of the tribes east of the Mississippi? Is that true? That may be, that may be true. And um, that may be true, but what are we really comparing things to here? I mean, you're talking about, some of the most colonized, earliest colonized states in the in the country. Um, you're talking about. Um, I mean, we shouldn't be 
bragging about about that, I wouldn't think. She's kind of reaching out with that one, huh? <laughs> but, well, the bottom line is, what does that have to do with access to federal beneficial acts? Right. And, um, you know, you could take a tribe if we had 4 million acres and we didn't have uh, access to laws to help our people, like this bill would still be necessary. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the two, the two arguments there. I mean, 2004 was very specific to um, federal beneficial acts. And I, I don't know what it had to do with how much land we have or what kind of money we got in 1980. Yeah. So her second uh, point here is uh, she said, in exchange for the ability to acquire land across Maine, the tribes agreed that state law would apply in this tribal territory in order to maintain a stable and consistent legal and regulatory framework, as opposed to potentially confusing patchwork of jurisdictional enclaves across Maine. So, you know, she's saying that in exchange for the land, you know, the tribes to in order so that uh, the state law didn't apply in a patchwork fashion that we agreed to this, uh, uh, to this land acquisition <laughs> Be- because state, because we wanted state law to apply evenly. Does that make sense? No, but it, um, <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, to that issue, I mean, I think the tribes, we all know, the history of duress and the current conditions on tribal in tribal communities at the time, all of those things. Um, again, our, our purpose has never been to relitigate that period of time, but to really try to focus on going forward um, in terms of the tribes giving up jurisdiction for, for the right to acquire land. I, I don't think that's very factual. I think those things, you know, we had a real, we were in an era then post self-determination, just a few years post self-determination. We were in an era coming off a termination era of policies that, um, that quite frankly um, needs to be looked at. I mean, during that period of time, you had, you know, very little women rights in the workplace. You had you know, same-sex marriage wouldn't even been thought of um, back then. You know, things evolve over time. Right. And it's okay to look back and say that was a bad policy. It was a bad policy. It had negative effects. Um, but instead, what you have is um, these constant kind of excuses as to why that status should remain going forward. And, um, and it... To me, I mean, I, I just don't understand, you know, the tribes. I don't think, I think we all understand on this call that um, that the tribes um, had very little understanding of the totality of the impact of, of what was being done. And only time could prove that. And so here we are over four decades later, um, with a plethora of examples and, you know, our representation is at a whole new level that understands these issues that can actually be in the room and control the room many times with, with a lot of very smart attorneys and other people um, on this issue. And uh, so it's to me, I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that the tribes, um, 
very uh, clearly and and with uh, force said, okay, we're willing to give up these things for that. I, I don't think that was the conversation you had. You had a state government and a delegation that was dead set against any kind of sovereign authority within the state borders. Right. You know, and I think this, this letter um, is, is really a, a really great thing because it actually shows us the thinking um, and kind of proves the the historical paradigm that uh, we've sort of proven through our research. And, uh, and she goes further to say, and it's true, I agree with her on this. She says, in this way, Mixa did something that had never been done anywhere in the country and something that has never been replicated. It provided a way for the tribes to reacquire extensive lands from non-tribal owners while avoiding the disruptive effects that would result from displacing state law on those parcels as they uh, acquired them in uh, desperate places across Maine in the decades to follow. Uh, This explains why state law applies to lands belonging to the tribes in Maine. And Maine has, uh, Maine also is not unique in this respect. State laws in Rhode Island Massachusetts, for example, also apply to federally recognized tribes in those states. So, yeah, I mean, she's right. It's, uh, we're unique as far as, as, far as state law and, and how it's controlling us. And it's just, they've effectively uh, isolated us from the rest of Indian country. Uh, so that was her second, those are her second points. Are there any comments on that section? I can jump in here. I, uh, Chief Francis at one point used the word colonization. And this is exactly how colonization and oppression works and perpetuates. You know, the overtaking power takes and takes and takes resources, land, children, identity, cultural um, items. You know, our religion is outlawed. So when you have this overtaking power in power for so long and they've, you know, convinced everyone around them uh, to their benefit that the crumbs thrown at the colonized people are good and enough and we should be thankful for them. That's a really hard system to break, especially when you're trying to work within it. And that's essentially what we're trying to do. And, and it's it's hard. So when you have folks like the governor who are of that era able to recall some of the best fear-mongering and uh, these tactics from back then, people don't want to lose land. People don't want to lose money. And they don't want to lose it to the people they've colonized. So when you have tribes gaining resources, gaining relationships, uh, having these excellent legal representatives uh, lobbying and and speaking for us and and crafting good policy, that's terrifying to the folks that have benefited for generations from this colonial structure. So this veto letter sounds great, lots of flowery legal language. It's colonization. It's continuing the oppression that this system has benefited from. And if you're living well and you're benefiting from these things, 
why would you change that? And why wouldn't you fight to keep that structure in place while trying to convince everyone else you're, you're doing a good thing? And where the state has acted like we are wards and they take care of us, it's easier to perpetuate these things because it's like we're, we're little children and they know what's best and, and they know the big picture and we don't. So these attitudes and behaviors are transparent, uh, even though they're kind of hidden in, in these seemingly reasonable arguments. Yeah. Any other comment on that? Okay, so the third, oh. yeah. No, I would, I would just add, and I'm sorry, I, I, but I would just add that um, I think that's very well said. And I think when you look at the veto letter um, to the ambassador's point, you, you see things in there like, um, you know, this is not just about protection of Maine citizens, which last I knew we were as well, but this is also, uh, this is also about protecting the tribes. So this real parental mindset, whether it's conscious or not, is always there. So you have this, those types of statements and then saying, well, I'm protecting the tribes from the federal government because who knows what they're going to do. So I, I found it kind of laughable, the argument about, um, you know, you don't know what Congress is going to do and, um, and they may do something to hurt the tribes. And, um, you know, and I just found that whole argument kind of absurd, but, but I think uh, the ambassador hit on it very well, that this parental mindset is very, very much still there. And I, again, I don't know if it's, a conscious effort to do that or just an ingrained uh, mindset of that generation um, that exists and, and just continues to perpetuate itself. Yeah. And you, you think, you know, what, what uh, guardians or wards would actually uh, steal from the people they're supposed to be protecting uh, and abuse them and isolate them uh, from any sort of, of uh, monies or revenues or uh, self-determining economic statuses that they could maintain. So yeah, this uh, wardship uh, is kind of more like a jailkeeper, not like a ward. Okay, so uh, number three, uh, it guaranteed that the tribes receive federal benefits and services on the same terms as their counterparts around the country except for only a handful of statutes that would conflict with state law. It also made the tribes in Maine eligible for many, many streams of state funding, including education funding and revenue sharing, which is beneficial because other federal, federally recognized tribes around the country generally do not receive such state funding. So how, how uh, available, should I say, how eligible are main tribes for state funding? How many you know, programs are we? So I find that comment extremely overstated. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at our entire tribal budget, um, I think the best estimate we came up with in working with our finance department was we receive about a little over $94,000 a year that, that could be considered state money. 
Um, most of that, I believe, is passed through federal dollars. Um, but if you look at the history of whether it was the Proctor Report or a lot of things that came out about um, state resources that were supposed to go to tribes, um, we have a long history of not benefiting from. Um, so I always say, you know, we have we live in a state where. Uh, state government can exercise plenary authority over Indian tribes, but has no fiduciary responsibility to the same tribes to address the conditions that they're making decisions about. Um, that's the difference between the trust relationship we have with the federal government and the relationship with state government. And so you look at things like the opioid monies that came into the state, um, the COVID relief dollars that came into the state, uh, you know, we didn't benefit from any of those things, um, even though Congress wrote in there that states, tribes and uh, state local governments and, and tribes were supposed to be eligible for those funds. Um, you know, so um, so there's a there's a disconnect there in terms of what the state either thinks they're doing for us or there's there's simply um a disingenuous argument being made that, that the tribes benefit, you know, Maine Indian education, for example, as you know, those funds are not governed by the tribe. It's a, it's a, uh, an organization that um, oversees funding for um, our BIE schools. And, and it, um, and that goes through our elected school boards and they work jointly with the other tribes, um, through Maine Indian education. And, you know, so I can't speak to those funds, um, but I will tell you in terms of just rank and file programmatic things, um, you know, we, we receive very, very little from the state of Maine and, you know, to be fair, I nor have we um, felt the need to pursue any of that stuff. Um, it, it, but certainly there's nobody reaching out to us saying, you know, you're eligible for this. Or, or any of those things. So, so I think it's really overstated and, and very disingenuous to say that uh, because of the Settlement Act, you know, we benefit, you know, without Settlement Acts all over the country, tribes benefit from those same things. Yeah. And then she goes on about the, uh, the Suffolk report, uh, how it, uh, the report identified 151 federal laws uh, that were enacted after the implementation of NICSA, uh, related to which uh, many uh, benefit uh, Indians and Indian nations. However, this does not mean that the tribes do not receive the benefits of these 151 laws. It says, in fact, in the same report, it notes that it did not attempt to answer the question whether a law was a benefit of the Indians. Uh, and she says, in evaluating her office, uh, committee, my, in, uh, let me see, in evaluating 151 laws identified by the report at the request of the Judiciary Committee, my office has determined that nearly all these federal laws do apply uh, to the tribes in Maine. Only a handful of federal laws, such as the Stafford Act, the Indian Health Improvement Act, the Clean Water Act, do not apply. 
is that is that an accurate? I mean, is that true? I mean, the, uh, that most of the laws apply with the exception of Stafford and the uh, Indian Health Improvement Act and the Clean Water Act. And 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 if they if they these do not apply, what's the effect that the Stafford Act doesn't apply, or Indian Health Improvement Act doesn't apply, or the Clean Water Act doesn't apply? What does that do to the tribes? Anyone want to answer that? Well, I, I just think, again, I mean, it's it's easy to say that most all these laws apply and she doesn't list which ones do or don't, except for these few that obviously are contentious. Um, but, you know, the Hearth Act, for example, so if we start exercising leasing authority um, under that act, the state's going to be fine with that. Like if we if we start to um, permit our own our own uh, projects on tribal land, now we have experience with that. For example, uh, you know, trying to do alternative energy projects, um, we had two investors walk away because of the kind of dual oversight in Maine's insistence that their permitting was the only way a company can come into the state. So, um, so I don't think that the hard thing is, is what we've been saying all along is it's easy to say most all of these things apply to you. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, with the Stafford act, for example, we didn't even know that, that was not going to apply to us until it hit the Senate floor. And we were specifically excluded from that. From then AG Mills, who wrote the letter to the delegation and wrote the colloquy for the Senate uh, to argue on the floor. So, so I, um, I think the point of 2004 is, is the uncertainty of what will apply and what won't and the ability of the state to control that agenda all the time is um, is a problem and nothing stymies investment. You know, there were U.S. Treasury reports is all kinds of things. And, um, you know, the underinvestment in Indian country is almost entirely blamed on jurisdictional frameworks that are confusing. And nobody wants to get into these um, these legal fights, especially with uh, projects that require a lot of investment, a lot of time and effort. And, um, and that was, has been kind of our experience. So I, I don't know, you know, first of all, that's news to me that the Indian healthcare improvement act didn't apply to us. Um, and, you know, I think that bill was very clear, you know, we we have a self-governing, uh, uh, clinic in our community that, um, has been, operating autonomously from most all governments uh, for a very long time, you know, there is federal oversight there, but, but it, it's just, um, so that, that, that issue came up during COVID and it, um, and it was kind of news to us that, that the state took the position that they had some control under that act. So I think, you know, that is a good example, but at the same time, you know, I don't know, I mean, we could throw, throw the funny thing is the tribes over the past three or four years have had to quantify everything we've said. We, so they always say, well, tell us how this doesn't apply. Tell us how it affects you. Tell us. And in the meantime, they never had to once come to us and say, 
these are the problems we have with with these and this is the problem we have with those or none of that so we had to really quantify why we needed the bill so it's easy to throw out there that well most of these things apply to them anyway it it negates the fact of the need for the bill which is to create certainty and equality for the main tribes nobody should have to go through no indian tribe should have to go through this kind of uncertainty when dealing with their relationship as a federally recognized tribe with the United States. So just for clarification, what was the Stafford Act? So the, the Stafford Act amendments dealt with um, tribes being able to um, directly uh, contact FEMA to declare an emergency disaster uh, within their communities to access those resources. So tribes all across the country, as you know, they deal with wildfires, hurricanes, um, a whole host of things. So Congress um, felt the need after a long period of investigation about states where governors, you know, don't necessarily prioritize tribal land and are not going to declare those disasters because there are cost shares and all of those things that go into that. Um, But the tribes, in the Stafford Act amendments um, just simply says that you can declare those disasters. You can work directly with FEMA on that specific disaster and the tribes would pick up the cost. share, And, and so it seemed like a no brainer to me. And, uh, um, but under then uh, I think it was governor LePage um, basically said, no, that's a MEMA issue. And there was no good reason for it except to say that's our authority and we're keeping it. So, um, so that's kind of how that all went down. And I find it kind of ironic 10 years later that let's sit down and fix that. Right. Like when we worked really hard to try to be included in that bill um, against fierce objection from the state. Hmm. Anybody else have comments on those? Yeah, I do. This whole Stafford Act nonsense is is ridiculous. Um, I was in Congress literally sitting with members of the main delegation a couple of months ago when there was a natural disaster unfolding at Madakamigook Indian Township. And our health center was shuttered. It had we had burst pipes because of freezing. We had our computer servers were down. We're a priority one health center as it is. So we're only providing critical services. And the whole place was shut down. And the state of Maine did not declare an emergency. And our tribal leaders were talking to Angus King. And he wants to look at the pictures and see the damage. Oh, we want to help you figure it out. We What can we do? The only thing that happened is that the tribe paid out of its pocket to start making the repairs that were necessary. The tribe started expending resources. The state was there. They said, come to us, come to us. I'll tell you what would have happened. The state of Maine declares an emergency. Federal dollars intended to to, uh, address a natural disaster on tribal lands would have gone to the state of Maine. And the state of Maine would have taken an administrative fee. So the state would have administered those funds for the tribes. And they would have essentially delivered less funds because the state had to be a part of that process. 
it's wonderful to hear that 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 Senator King and Governor Mills are willing to like negotiate a you know a separate piece of legislation around that. But the simple fact of the matter is that there could be a disaster today at any one of the tribal communities in Wabanaki territory, and we would not have the same ability to protect our people and provide for public safety as, as tribes elsewhere. And so, you know, I, I think it's really rich that they want to come to the table with this now. You know, they've seen the pictures, they know the problems. And as the chief said, this is a, a change that has only occurred in the last couple of months because they've known this has been a problem for many, many years and there's been no desire to help the tribes. And, and I really think that this is a matter, not to be dramatic, but it could be a matter of life or death in our communities. Right. And they like to pretend that, you know, th- that, that by, you know, bringing laws like Stafford Act in, there's going to be these unforeseen intended consequences against Maine citizens. What about our citizens who can't go to the health center? What about our citizens whose roads and homes are flooded when they live on an island or next to low-lying waters? Where is the concern for our well-being? The state of Maine does not seem to care in the same way for our people as they do for other citizens of the state. And I think the Stafford Act is a perfect example of that. Kirk, you look like you wanted to say something. No, I just totally agree. Okay. So she goes on and she says, therefore, the Wabanaki nations benefit from nearly every federal law from which every other federally recognized tribe benefits. This is why Wabanaki nations have collectively received $423.6 million in federal funding since 2019, according to public records. Any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, and we've done some research on this. Um, and, you know, and I'll speak for Penobscot. I mean, that is a highly skewed number. Uh, first of all, you know, it, these were from 2019 to th- through 2022, there was historic one-time funding opportunities for states, local governments, and tribes. Uh, you know, the state, it would be like saying, you know, the state since 2019 received all this money. So they're, what's happened to their budget now, right? Like, So they got a lot more than the tribes did, but I will tell you uh, our health facility uh, received one-time funding. The tribes received one-time funding through ARPA, whether it was the infrastructure package, whether it was the CARES Act, you know, all of those things. Um, So it was a convenient time to throw that number around. Um, those dollars had to be used for specific reasons, for specific purposes, to address a human health crisis that was going on, and um, and to protect communities during that period of time. Uh, they should be thankful that the tribes had the wherewithal and uh, strength to fight through those things and get those types of resources. Uh, we were never a burden to the state. Matter of fact, I would say we were helpful to the state of Maine during that period of time. Um, so those numbers don't reflect like some sort of biannual, biannual uh, tribal budgets. I mean, it's, it, it was a historic time with, with a great deal of um, historic funding available to address 
a crisis this whole country was going through. So it's um, it's an unfair statement to throw around. But again, it's it's 150,000 acres, you know, 41 million dollars, uh, 400 million, you know, all this just these tribes are doing great and they just want their cake and eat it too, basically. And so, um, so it's a, it's a little discouraging that they, they went there with that stuff because I think it's, I think it's extremely unfair, especially when the tribes, as Corey mentioned, run their own healthcare systems. You know, the town of old town doesn't have to do that. The, the tribes run their own social service programs dealing with opioid epidemics and child welfare issues and a whole host of things. We run our own courts. You know, I don't know a municipality that does that. Um, we have our, uh, you know, game wards, conservation officers, and, you know, foresters, everything that, um, that governments uh, have, sovereign governments have, you know, we're, we're operating programs well above that. And, um, and we're operating at about 50% of need in a lot of those areas with the disparities that our communities face to, to try to make the argument that we're somehow um, rich is, um, is not only not true, it's just not fair to say and, um, and flies in the face with, you know, the conversation nationally that's going on within Indian country. So that was the background in her in her letter and then she starts to address the actual bill she says uh i will now turn to ld 2004 and the serious substantive flaws with this legislation so uh state law she says cannot override federal law i think we all agree with that uh, the bill attempts to override a federal law in MIXA that governs how federal legislation applies in Maine. As a matter of constitutional law, state laws cannot override or preempt federal laws. This means that while LD 2004 purports to make those few federal laws that are not uh, applicable to tribes, uh, in Maine, uh, in, act, in actuality, it would not, as Attorney General Aaron Fry, Aaron Fry noted in his testimony, the bill may not be effective uh, at achieving its stated intent. Um, imprecise language uh, would lead to litigation. So she, she starts out with that, and, and then she says, well, the bill cannot override federal law. The language in LD 2004 would impact state law, and it would impact it in serious ways that would result in widespread confusion about how and where Maine law applied. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> stop right there, and uh, I'm going to end this uh, first part one, this session. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Abenaki Windows. Uh, tune in again tomorrow for part two of our special session uh, on this past legis on the past legislative issues. Um, I want to thank Chief Francis, Ambassador Bryant, and Attorney Hinton for being on the show today.
Tune in again tomorrow, July 20th, at this time for part two of this Wabanaki window special. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from the CD Dreamwalk. Uh, the engineer for our show is John Mann uh, of WBRU. <laughs>